tonight, Isaiah chapter number 53, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Holy Word of God says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight. Speak to hearts through it. And accomplish through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the applied Word of God what only you can accomplish. I pray if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, you'd show them their need of Christ's salvation. Lord, if there's one that's discouraged or in despair or downtrodden, I pray that you'd lift them up. If there's any that sin has exalted in pride, I pray that you'd abase them. Lord, I pray that you would reclaim the backslider and accomplish in us that which brings you the most glory. Father, we love you tonight, and we ask every bit of this in the magnificent and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most solemn, and if I can use this word without showing any disrespect for any other portion of the Word of God, because I do not mean that it is more righteous or more inspired, but in a sense it's one of the most hallowed chapters of the entire Word of God. You see, as we read Isaiah 53, we are seeing the cross as God saw the cross. We're seeing Calvary 
through the eyes of an almighty God. Could I say to you that every one of us, when we looked at Calvary, and I understand that uh, that He was evidently uh, seen by all of us, spiritually speaking, as being crucified. But it's one thing to see Calvary through the eyes of a ten-year-old boy like I did when I got saved. Or it's another thing to see the eyes through a, a, a 12 or a 15-year-old or 20 or 25 or 40 or 50 or however old you might have been. But it's one thing to see Calvary through the sin-fallen eyes of a lost transgressor. But it's an entirely other thing to see Calvary through the eyes of God the Father. For you see, when we read this passage, we're not getting anyone's opinion on Calvary. We're not getting anyone's presumptions about Calvary. We're getting the truth from God's eyes about Calvary. And I want to tonight just take this passage verse by verse. There's only 12 verses. And I want to say a quick word about each of them. Because something you'll find in Isaiah 53 is that this chapter literally takes us from the moment of Christ's birth in this world uh, on through to the ascension, exaltation, and glorification that took place when He entered heaven once again. These verses divide themselves uh, in a unique way. The first four verses deal with His mysterious incarnation. The next five verses deal with His merciful crucifixion. Not merciful towards Him, but merciful for us. And then the last three verses speak of His magnificent glorification. Study it with me tonight and notice in verse number 1, we see the obscurity of the Savior. Now, some of you are saying, well, the Son of God is not obscure. And it's true that as we look backwards, as I said this morning, through 2,000 years of Western Christianity, He is not obscure. I mean, you can walk up and down the streets and you'll find the name of Jesus Christ uh, is known by people. He may not be known by very many, but His name is known by most. But listen to how God begins this chapter and listen to what He says about our Lord coming into the world. He says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? These are what are known as rhetorical questions. Meaning they're not necessarily given uh, for the purpose of seeking knowledge, but rather to encourage those uh, that are in earshot uh, or are able to read these questions to ask themselves those very questions and to answer them with the observable answer. And the Bible is teaching us this truth, that when Christ came into the world, there was no fanfare. When Christ came into the world, uh, at least uh, earthly speaking, there were no parades, there was no fanfare. In fact, I would say to you that the Jewish people, uh, they were looking for a Messiah to be born in the household of a king. They were looking for a Messiah to be birthed amongst the lavish purple draperies of uh, Solomon's house, but they were not looking for our Lord to be born into a manger. And yet the Bible teaches that it would be so. The Bible teaches us uh, not only that our Lord uh, would be born to a mean and lowly birth, but also even the city in which He would be born. 
Uh, a lot of us think about uh, the wise men following the star uh, to Bethlehem, but the Bible does not say that they uh, followed the star to Bethlehem. It says that they followed it to Israel, and they spoke with Herod, and Herod found out where he would be born, at Bethlehem Ephrata, Bethlehem of Judah, and the wise men went there. The reason they knew that is because the Bible tells us uh, in the book of Micah where he would be born, that he would be born in Bethlehem uh, of Ephrata. The Bible told us how our Lord would be born. The Bible revealed to us this idea of a suffering Savior. And in fact, the passage that we're reading, if we had no other prophecy in the entire Old Testament, it should be sufficient enough to show us that the Messiah that was uh, going to come into the world would come not as a king conquering, but as a lamb slain, uh, would not come to the approval of men, but would come to be a sacrifice for men. But who hath believed our report? You see, the reason the Jews crucified the Lord of glory is because they were not looking for a Savior, they were looking for a Messiah. You say, what's the difference? Well, the Messiah was there, would have been there to have redeemed the nation. The Savior was there to save the soul. They were looking for someone to break the yoke of Roman bondage. They were looking for someone uh, to get them out from under the political oppression of the Roman government. But who is this that uh, comes from Nazareth? Who is this that comes and commands that we repent? Who is this that tells us that we're uh, nothing but vipers? Who is this that tells us that we're whited sepulchers? Who is this uh, that tells us uh, that we're full of dead men's bones? Who is this that tells us that we're the children of the devil? That's not who we're looking for. But that was the Son of God. That was the Savior of men. And that was the Messiah of the Old Testament. They didn't believe the report. And it says, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We could ask that question, couldn't we? Isn't it interesting? And by the way, as you read through the Christmas story, as we like to call it, in the book of Luke, you'll find uh, that uh, so many of the key and important figures in the world at that time are treated with obscurity, and yet a group of shepherds out in a field are the ones that God revealed the birth of His Son to. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. It was not very many that understood that the Messiah would be the same as the sacrificial lamb. You see, in the Jewish mind, they were looking for two separate things. In the Jewish mind, all through the Old Testament... They sacrificed lambs and they looked to the lamb for atonement and they looked to the lamb for forgiveness, but they also looked to the Messiah for deliverance and they couldn't comprehend that they could be one and the same. Even the apostles would continually ask the Lord, wilt thou at this time, at this time, at this time, at this time, and even right before he ascended, they said, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Wilt thou at this time set up thy kingdom? That's the reason the cross was such an offense to them. They were expecting Him to wear a crown of gold, not a crown of thorns. They were looking for Him uh, to hold a scepter and not uh, to be whipped and beaten and to be crucified. We see His obscurity spoken of. And by the way, as we talk about the incarnation, let me give you a theological truth here. The incarnation does not speak only of the birth of Jesus Christ. But everything between the birth all the way up to the cross is the incarnation of Christ. You say, I don't know if I believe that, preacher. Well, what did we preach on this morning? Uh, Without controversy, great is the uh, mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 
The Bible says Christ said that He was declaring the Father unto them. And all through His life, He was manifesting God the Father to humanity. And so when we speak of the Incarnation, we're not just speaking of the moment of His birth, but His entire life as He revealed God to mankind. And we see His humility in verse number 2. This is what threw them. This is what confused them. For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. We like to think of our Lord and Savior as being the very specimen of what a human being should be. We like to imagine that when you saw the Son of God, you would have known just by His appearance that He was the Son of God. And by the way, most of us, the idea we have about Jesus isn't even the appearance that He would have had. He wouldn't have been white. You say, how do you know that? Because he's king of the Jews. He was Jewish. He wouldn't have had uh, the long hair that we see. He wouldn't have been blue-eyed. He wouldn't have had any of those things. He would have most likely been a short, uh, short, curly-haired, dark-skinned Jew. That's what he would have looked like. But beyond his ethnic distinctions, I believe that if we had looked upon the Son of God, we wouldn't have seen anything spectacular about him. Almost like Samson of old. We kind of sometimes picture Samson as being this big muscle-bound character, but the Bible teaches us that he looked like any other man. His strength was supernatural. And even so with the Son of God. uh, He grew up before him as a tender plant. His strength was not vested in uh, his uh, muscle and bone and tissues. Uh, His strength was not vested in his natural ability, but in his divinity as the Son of God. The Bible says, as a root out of a dry ground. We just redid our flower beds at the house. And uh, I tried to get, listen, I tried to get a woman to go with me, either my mother or my wife, to pick out a plant. And you say, why? Because I don't know anything about plants whatsoever. And uh, I went and I looked for something that looked pretty, and I said, well, that'll, that'll do. Uh, it had blooms on it, so I knew I wouldn't have to wait. So I bought six of them. And because that's how men are, they just they go bigger, they go home, you know, and I bought six of them and I brought them to the house and uh, we got our flower beds in order and we we planted them and uh, we got we did rock in the in the flower bed. We put rock around. It. We got everything, uh, you know, squared away. And you say, what was it called? And I don't remember, so I can't tell you. And uh, we got everything squared away, and I, I was sitting there looking at those plants, and I thought to myself, I probably ought to get on the Internet and find out what I bought, you know. And so I got on the Internet, and I searched, and I found out that it was not a plant. It was a vine that was to grow in tropical environments. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, about five of them look like they're at least thinking about doing well, but there's this one poor little fellow that he's just not going to make it, and I can tell it right now. And he's growing up, but he's growing up as a root out of a dry ground. And if we had seen the Son of God, we wouldn't have seen Him flourishing with respect and honor and adoration. We would not have looked upon Him and said, Oh, there goes the kingly bearing of the uh, of one that is the Son of God and the King of the Jews. If we had seen the Son of God, there would have been nothing extraordinary about His appearance. He would have appeared just as any other man. That was part of His condescension for you and I. We see his humility, but look at verse number three. We see his enmity. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows 
Boy, it's hard to read it. I'm being honest with you. It may not be for you, but for me, it's, it's hard to read it. You almost don't know how you should read it to show it the respect it deserves. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, you say, who's we? That's you and me. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely when the Son of God would come into this world, surely uh, the world would be receptive of its Creator. I mean, you would think it's just natural. And I understand that uh, there usually comes a point in the life between parents and children where there's going to be a little rebellion and they're uh, you know, going to butt heads and there's going to be problems. Uh, but I can tell you, it's a wonderful thing when they're real little and real cute and real sweet and they don't smell bad yet and they just love you so much and you love them so much and there's that adoration with them. And you would think the parent of this world, uh, the one that created this world, the one by whom this world was created, created, you would think that the Son of God and the Word infallible, the one, the basis for the creation of the world, when He came into the world, you would think surely that this world would receive Him. But the Bible says He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. The Bible teaches us that He was the light of the world, but that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Bible that teaches us that when he should have been uh, treated with respect, he was despised. When he should have been received, he was rejected. The Bible teaches that when man should have looked upon him and with glowing adoration proclaimed him to be the Son of God, that we hid, as it were, our faces from him. You say, preacher, I'd never do that. But a lot of us, When people start finding out we're Christians, we start hiding our face. And when we have an opportunity to witness, we start hiding our face. See, we're as guilty of it today as they were then. This world is at enmity with God, the book of James says, meaning that they are the enemy of God. They've always been. And religion and iniquity, which also go hand in hand, by the way, has always rejected the Savior. Christ said that this world hates me and it's going to hate you, not because it hates you, but because it hates me, because we're one and the same, because I'm in you and because you're living and expressing and showing me to the world. This world is going to hate you. And I can tell you right now, the quickest way to get people mad at you is to start living like Jesus. The quickest way to get people upset is to start having a testimony for Jesus Christ. And it won't be long before you'll be despised and rejected too. It's funny to me that the prosperity preaching of the world would proclaim that if we're not rich and healthy and well-liked and well-spoken of, that we're out of the will of God. When our Lord and Savior was not rich, He had no place to lay His head. He was not well spoken of. They slandered Him. They said, uh, speaking of our Lord, they said, we be not born of fornication, implying that He was. And uh, I know that our Lord never had, to our knowledge, a sickness. He was uh, completely healthy. He had fatigue, but we don't imagine that He had uh, sickness of any kind. Uh, But He bore our iniquities upon the cross, and He became sin for us. He was not well spoken of. He was not well thought of. Why would we think that being in the will of God would demand that we be all the things that Jesus was not? But that's the world we live in today. We see His enmity 
Notice verse number 4. It says, Surely He hath borne our griefs. I believe this is speaking of the life of Christ, not the death of Christ. That's important. Because we have an idea sometimes that He came and spent the first 33 and a half years of His life living perfectly and then the last 15, 16 hours bearing our sin. And I understand that He became our sin on Calvary. And I understand that He lived perfectly in His life. But understand that He did not begin the work of bearing our griefs and sorrows on Calvary. He had been bearing our griefs and sorrows His entire life. He had been, what does the Bible say, tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Now, I believe that God dumped upon him on Calvary all the sins of all the world. But we're not talking just about his sin. We're talking about his suffering in verse number 4, where it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Have you ever stopped and thought that Jesus did not just die for your sins, but also for your sorrows? I think sometimes we imagine that God can empathize with us, uh, but He did not experience what we experience. But can I tell you that when you go through sorrows, Jesus died for those sorrows just like He died for your sins. I can't explain everything about it. I can't point to a time in Scripture uh, where He necessarily went through what you're going through. But if I believe the Word of God, and if you believe the Word of God, then no matter what you go through, no matter what heartache you're facing, no matter what trial uh, that you're going through, what storm you're entering into, the Son of God has borne it for you already. What does the book of Hebrews say? Uh, that through His suffering He might make perfect the captain of their salvation. What does it mean when it says make perfect? That word perfect denotes maturity or completion. And it's not that Jesus uh, had to suffer uh, to be a high priest. It's that He had to suffer so that we could have confidence in His high priesthood. Jesus could have been a high priest and never been tempted. But He had to be tempted so that we know that He was tempted. So that when we come before Him, we know we're dealing with one that does not just give sympathy, but one that gives empathy. You say, what's the difference, preacher? Sympathy is feeling bad for someone. Empathy is feeling bad with someone. You know, the Bible says, well, I've always liked this. It says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I find it interesting that it does not say, for we have not an high priest which has not been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But rather it says, which cannot. You say, what's the difference? The difference is this. If it had said, which has not been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, we might imagine uh, that it's speaking of Him only being able to touch, uh, be touched with our pain and sorrows uh, when He walked amongst men upon this earth. But by it saying that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that tells me that even now, seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, when I feel pain, He'll feel pain with me. When I have sorrow, He'll have sorrow with me. I'm not saying it's a weakness or a temptation to Him, but I'm saying He chooses to feel with us. That's empathy. He'll weep when we weep. He'll rejoice when we rejoice. And all this swirled together, all this in perfect harmony presents to us His life. 
that He was manifest in the flesh, but that men rejected Him, that He was born not to fanfare and not to praise of men, but in a mean and lowly birth, that the world hated Him, that the world rejected Him, but that He willingly suffered and bore our griefs and sorrows. But then notice verse 5, we step into the moment of the crucifixion. I like to read verse 4 and 5 together because it presents a smooth transition. Connect these thoughts in your mind and you'll see what God's saying here through Isaiah. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He did this for us. Yet what did we do? We esteem Him. We did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And could I say to you that Jesus Christ was all those things. He was stricken. He was smitten of God. And He was afflicted. But notice the language. But. And it's almost as though if I could say it the way that I would today, if I was explaining it to you, I would say He bore our griefs, He carried our sorrows. And we looked at Him and we thought that He was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But all He was doing... But what was really happening, but what was actually going on, was He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. See, Isaiah is trying to show us the picture of the persecuted life of the Son of God and of the crucifixion that He would endure. And he's trying to get us to understand uh, that the world looked at Him and thought if He was really a king, He'd pull Himself off that cross. If He was really the Son of God, He wouldn't allow Himself to be crucified in this way. If He was really the Son of God, He'd show the world. And Isaiah is saying, no, you don't understand. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And He's also stricken. He's also smitten of God. And He's also also afflicted, and the reason is because He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bearing what we should have borne. We see the sufferings of the crucifixion. Wounded, and He was wounded. I believe that this wound speaks of the physical suffering of Calvary. He was bruised for our iniquities. Notice this word, the chastisement And that speaks of the judicial punishment of Jesus Christ for us by God. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. You know that if there's been sin, and if peace is to be achieved, then chastisement is the only means to do it. Some of you remember when you were growing up, and you had parents that would whip you. And God bless them if they did. Amen? We need that. You know, I was uh, the, the other day, this ain't got nothing to do with anything, but I want you to understand what our, uh, the mindset of our government is. We took our little boy uh, to the pediatrician the other day. You know that the pediatrician asked us if we have guns in our homes? Tell me things aren't getting scary. The pediatrician asked us that. And the pediatrician gave us a little paper about what we're going to talk about next time. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, i got a few things I'd like to talk about next time too. But uh, one of the things they're wanting to talk with us about is how to discipline our children. 
And I would have you know that I'm not looking to Mr. Obama to teach me how to discipline my children. And I'm not looking to Mr. Spock to teach me uh, how to discipline my children. I'd I'd sooner listen to the pointy-eared Vulcan than I would uh, to the quacked-out psychiatrist. I'm not looking for the government to teach me how to discipline my children. I'm not looking for society to teach me how to discipline my children. I'm looking to the Bible to teach me how to discipline my children. And some of you remember growing up how that if you had done something wrong and if you were going to have peace with your parents again, the only way it could be achieved was through a whipping. You had to pay for what you had done. The Bible teaches us that our peace, the peace that we have with God, that chastisement that was required was put upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. There's some that would have us to believe, particularly the charismatic crowd, that this is the text verse for claiming that God will heal us in any situation. But that's not the healing that's being spoken of here. Um, God doesn't uh, necessarily need the stripes of Calvary to, to heal a person physically. He can do whatever He pleases to do. This is a spiritual healing. This is the healing of the communion and relationship between God's creation, man, and between Him. This is the justification that was promised when the seed was promised in Genesis chapter number 3. Uh, this is God healing His relationship with mankind. We see the suffering of the crucifixion, but look at verse number 6. We see the substitution of the crucifixion. How did we respond? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. What does the Bible say about our own way? The book of Proverbs says it. In fact, it's so important it says it twice. That there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And that's what we got. Mankind went his own way, and he got death as a result. The Bible says that the wages of sin. Well, what's sin? Sin's going your own way as opposed to going God's way. Sin is independence of God. Sin is our claiming to know more than what God knows. And so even though God commands us not to live in such a way, we live in that way anyway. We thumb our noses at God and tell Him He doesn't know what's best for our life. That's what sin is. And we sin. We went astray. We went our own way. We sinned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And all of mankind has been spiraled into depravity. So what did God do? And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The old adage is given that a preacher was going through a railway station. He was busy and he was late for a meeting. And someone came to him and hollered out to him and said, Preacher, I need to be saved. What do I do? And the preacher said, well, I don't have time. The train is leaving. I've got a meeting that I must get to. But I'll tell you what. Turn to Isaiah 53, 6. And he said, go in at the first all, come out at the last all, and you'll be all right. The man didn't understand what he meant until he turned to this very verse and understood that if we include ourselves in the first all, all we like sheep have gone astray. And if we'll look to Calvary, then we'll be included in the last all, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The death of Jesus Christ on Calvary was substitutionary, meaning that was our cross, but He took it. That was our crown, but He took it. That was our whip, but He took it. 
That was uh, our reproach, but He took it. Everything that we deserved, He got. And everything that He deserved, we got. That's the substitutionary death of Christ on Calvary. We see in verse 7 the submission of the crucifixion. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The Bible tells us that when he was brought before Herod, and Herod uh, saw him as just a cheap magician. Herod said, uh, the Bible says that Herod was uh, of a long time desirous to see him and prayed him that he would do some miracle. In other words, when he saw Jesus, he said, do something for me. And by the way, there's a lot of people on their way to hell today because when they see Jesus, all they can say is, do something for me. And when they see Jesus, it's just fix my marriage. I don't want to get saved, but fix my marriage. Get me out of debt. I don't want to get saved, but get me out of debt. I I don't want to get saved, but heal my body. And they're looking not for a Savior to get them out of sin, but a Savior to get them out of their situation, whatever it might be. And Herod said, do something for me. And the only person in all of Scripture that's ever recorded that Jesus wouldn't speak to was Herod. He didn't say anything. It's interesting to me that he spoke to Pilate. Pilate was the one that was actually judging him, you understand. Herod was just wanting to see a parlor trick. And I began to think about the language used here where it says, yet he opened not his mouth. And I began to think about the power that was in the mouth or the Word of God. And I believe what's being said here is not necessarily that he didn't come to his own defense, but it is exhibiting, and let me use a word that I believe a lot of times is used out of context, but the word meekness. Do you know what meekness is? Meekness is strength under submission. The Bible tells us of Moses that he was the meekest man on earth. Do you know why Moses was the meekest man on earth? Because time and time again through the book of Exodus, God would come to Moses and say, Moses, just move out of the way. I'll kill them all and I'll start over with you. These people are rebellious and stiff-necked and I'm not going to tolerate their iniquity. Moses, just move aside and I'll start over. And Moses would say, no, Lord. No, you can't do that. Because you've called these people by your name. And the world's watching And they'll blaspheme when you do it. You say, what's the significance? What are you driving at? You understand that Moses was probably the most hated man of the entire nation of Israel. And you say, how do you know that? Because he was the boss. (laughs) The boss always is. And there's no doubt a part of Moses that would have loved to have said, okay, Lord, just kill every one of them. God would have done it. But instead, Moses said, no, I'll deal with them in compassion. And you understand that when the Son of God was before Herod, being mocked, being made fun of, that all he had to do was speak a word. And Moses, and even this entire world and universe, could have been obliterated. 
He could have opened His mouth. And by the way, there's coming a day when He will open His mouth again. Revelation 19 uh, speaks of Him coming forth uh, on a white horse with a vesture dipped in blood. And it says a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of His mouth. You say, is that saying He's going to spit swords at people? No, that sharp two-edged sword is the same two-edged sword that the book of Hebrews speaks about when it says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the Word of life. That's the Word of God. God, and when He comes, the Bible teaches us that He is going to destroy them with the brightness of His coming and with the Word of God proceeding out of His mouth. All He would have had to have done was spoken a word and Herod would have been destroyed. So why didn't He? Because it wasn't the will of God. Because that wasn't the cup. The cup that He was to drink of was the cup of Calvary. You understand the submission I mean, he said, nevertheless, not, not my will, but thy will. He submitted. The Bible says that he became obedient, Philippians chapter 2. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He did that for the glory of God and for the good of sinners. What a Savior we've got. We see verse number 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. We see the satisfaction of the crucifixion. It says he was taken from prison and from judgment. Now this is speaking of the prison and judgment of Pilate, but I would remind you that when he left the judgment hall of Pilate, he was entering into the judgment hall of God the Father. And when he hung upon the cross of Calvary, uh, you know that all through the Word of God, he never called his Father God. He never, when he prayed, said God. He always addressed him as Father. But you'll find one singular time when the Son of God addresses His Father, not His Father, but His God. And there upon the cross of Calvary, in the midst of the darkness, He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to be interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was there in the veiled darkness of the meeting place of the Son of God and the sovereign God, that our judgment was meted out upon Him. And that eternal union, and I I can't explain to you the mystery of what took place, but only to say that in that moment, something between Him and God was severed, and a way between us and God was made. And I can't explain all of it to you, but simply to say that for whatever reason, in that moment, He didn't call Him Father, so that you and I could call Him Father. And the judgment of God was satisfied. Look at verse number 9. And He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death. Now, you know the Bible is is on purpose. (laughs) I don't know how to say it other than that. The Bible is on purpose. It's particular. It's distinctive. And it does not say, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, and he had done no violence, or also he had done no violence. 
It says, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. We see the sanctification of the crucifixion. Or could I use another word that I believe, if you're a Bible student, you'll understand what I mean. Could I use the word scapegoat? The Bible teaches us, and many of us are familiar with that term, scapegoat. And if someone is putting all the blame on us, or if someone takes the fall, uh, then we call them a scapegoat. The person upon whom all the blame is placed, and they carry it all, and they carry it away. That terminology comes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. The Bible gives provision for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, when the sacrifice would be given for the sins of the nation of Israel. And the Bible teaches uh, uh, that this, uh, this sacrifice uh, would be given, this spotless lamb would be given, but then there was another sacrifice that would take place at the same time. And the Bible teaches that there would be one uh, lamb that would be given for the atonement, but then there would be a second lamb known as the scapegoat. And the Bible teaches that the high priest would keep this scapegoat alive. And he would take this scapegoat over to the side and he would put his hands upon the head of this scapegoat. And he would pronounce over it all the sins of the nation of Israel. And then once he had accomplished that, the Bible teaches that a man would take this scapegoat out into a barren wilderness where it could never be found again, where it could never have any remembrance put on it again. And that scapegoat would be released out and it signified the carrying away of the sin from the nation of Israel. You ever wonder why the Bible is very, very particular to speak of the burial of Christ in the gospel? That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that uh, I, I deliver unto you that which was also delivered, I give unto you that which was also delivered unto me, how that Christ uh, was uh, crucified, according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day. Why does the Bible specific to speak of the burial of Christ? Because it signifies the activity of the scapegoat, the carrying away of our sins, not only from His presence, but in a sense from our presence. This is the act of what we call sanctification. God cleansing us. God washing us. And when I see an empty tomb, I don't think also only that my Savior is gone, but when I see an empty tomb, it reminds me also that my sins are gone, that they have been cast in the sea of God's forgetfulness, that they have been put behind His back, that as far is as the east is from the west, that they have been separated from me, and that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 that their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. They've been taken away. We see the sanctification of the crucifixion. I've got just a moment to give you this last thought. We see His mysterious incarnation and His merciful crucifixion. But notice finally His magnificent glorification. Verse 10 is one of the most puzzling verses in all the Word of God. But still it's true. We see the expression of Jehovah. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put him to grief. Why did it please him? When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the Bible speaking of God's response to the crucifixion. It pleased the Lord 
when he saw him die for our sins. It was the Lord that put him to grief. And when the Lord sees his soul as an offering for sin, and he, he shall see his seed, and that's speaking not of a physical or temporal seed, but it's speaking of the spiritual seed. Those of us that are children by faith and have put our faith in Jesus Christ, when God saw us, He shall prolong His days. Now this language is indicative of what's spoken of like in the book of Psalms. And I believe it's chapter 40 when it talks about uh, Thou wilt not see uh, leave thy soul in hell, nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Uh, it's not saying that Jesus didn't have the capacity to come out of the grave. It's that Jesus uh, chose to allow God the Father to raise Him by His power out of the grave. And what it's saying here is not that Jesus Christ had a shelf life or an expiration date, but what it's saying is that the prolonging of His, his days is in the will of the Father, and God accomplishes this. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. You say, what's the pleasure of the Lord? Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That sinners might come to know the Savior. We see verse 11, the exhaustiveness of justification. He shall see the travail of His soul, Jesus Christ's soul, and shall be satisfied. God's satisfied. You know, when a person is satisfied, they don't come looking for anything else. I kind of think sometimes when mankind tries to say, Lord, I'll not only believe on you, but I'll give you baptism, uh, that the Lord looks at it and says, that's okay, uh, I've been satisfied. Or when uh, the world looks at it and says, well, you know, I'll believe on you, but I'll also try to get there by my good works. I kind of think the Lord, uh, almost like a person that's full from the dinner table, just backs away and says, no, thank you, I've got all I need. I've been satisfied by what Jesus Christ did. And he says, by his knowledge, that's Jesus Christ, by his knowledge, by his death, burial, resurrection, my, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, the exhaustiveness of Christ's salvation that he's able to save. And the Bible says, you notice it says, by uh, his knowledge. What knowledge? Not only his death, burial, and resurrection, but his knowledge is high priest. And the Bible says uh, that He uh, ever liveth to make intercession for us by His knowledge as high priest. And finally, verse 12, we see the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Therefore will I divide Him a portion with the great, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, God is saying because of what He did on Calvary, I'll give Him a portion. And then He is going to divide that portion amongst those that have been made strong by believing on Him. Why? Because He hath poured out His soul unto death. One final definitive statement that summarizes the entire cross of Calvary and the incarnation of the Son of God. And He was numbered with the transgressors. This happened not only on Calvary, but when He was incarnate in this world and throughout the entire time that He lived. What did they accuse Him of? They said, this man receiveth sinful men. He was numbered among the transgressors. And He bare the sin of many. Well, I can't tell you the power and majesty of that statement. It doesn't just say that He paid the sin of many. It says He bare. 
like someone under a heavy load, but he was capable of bearing that load. He was able to carry it. His strong shoulders could pay not only for your sins, not just for my sins, uh, but the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, but for the sins of the whole world, he was able to bear them. He was strong enough to. And then what did he do? And made intercession for the transgressors. <laughs> for you and I. He didn't just bear our sins. But He made it so that we could believe on Him and be saved. We see the suffering Savior of Isaiah 53. Let's pray together.